Welcome to Dev and Dragon Radio. I'm your host, Emma Wieschuk. I'm here with special guest and author, Mick Smith. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to come on and say hello. Th this is going to be fun. So you have a book called Burning America. Now, what is this about? This is a, about a story. Paul Theus is this guy's name who had a child and he essentially was the primary caregiver of this child because his wife, Anne, would work double shifts and then besides sleeping and doing other things, was really preoccupied 24 hours a day. So typically what Paul Theus would do when he came home, he would not always find their daughter at home. So he would try to track her down and try to find her. However, one day he pulls up to the house and everything is gone. So literally everything is gone. Furniture, house empty, bank accounts empty, and what have you. So Paul says to himself, well, okay, these are material things. I guess these things happen. But the problem is, where's the child? So Paul walks into the house and he finds a little note from his wife, Anne, saying, I'm going away for a little while. Okay, that's fine too. But the note was tucked in a book on the John Bonet Ramsey child murder. Oh no. So that's kind of a strange way to get a message. So Paul says, wow, something's really off here. Let me try to track her down. Let me try to find a daughter where she would be. Goes to the police and what have you because on the way out the door, when he looked around, he saw these scattered papers. He picks up a piece of paper and he sees a receipt. That receipt is from the hippie bohemian section outside of Philadelphia. And if you know that area, it's called South Street. And Antheus had had her genitals pierced. Oh, wonderful. And there's a 35-year-old new mom, middle-class family, husband's a professor. That's what Paul does. It's not the most typical thing that somebody would do, especially when they took off. So. Paul Theus calls the school, tries to find the daughter. Not here, but she was at the Johnsons. Or the Johnsons picked up a child today. That child's name is Katrin. So he calls the Johnsons, no answer. So in sort of a panic and wondering now that he, life is kind of destroyed here mm -hmm. and very worried about his daughter finding the note where he did and seeing that perhaps Anne is a little bit off he finds a police officer and he says, officer, you know, I'm telling you, here's the situation. I came home, everything's gone. I can't find my daughter. It looks like Anne took off. How do I get a hold of my daughter? And really not helpful, but he says, well, look, could you at least call the Johnsons? So outside Philadelphia, where these folks are living, suburban Philadelphia, officer does get a hold of the Johnsons. And where is the child? He hears over the police radio, California. So finds out his child is taken 3,000 miles away. Oh, my. This is very concerning. So, you know, for a lot of parents, I said, here's the first line of the novel that says that no parent prepares for a child taken. Well, that's not what people expect. when. They no, have. it's not. Now, what gave you the inspiration for this book? Well, I think it's uh, 
kind of a collection because anybody who writes fiction, because this is a work of fiction, bases it on real life events and things that really happen. So this does touch on things that are a little bit more common than you might think, and therefore also reason for me to really say, I think you need to publish this book because I've run into people over the years and they said, yeah, well, something like that happened to me or at a buddy of mine or my neighbor or something like that. So I said, you know, maybe this is really something that people need to pay attention to and understand that it's happening. It's one parent will alienate the child or children from their respective partner or spouse. So inspired by real events, but it is a work of fiction to answer the question. Right, because parent um, custody battles or parent kidnappings are actually really common. Yes. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it's really common. And to get the child back from the parent that has the child is extremely hard. Yes, and I'd say coming down to the story here, I mean, this is essentially the problem with talking to someone like a police officer. You think, well, where would you go? The police will help, right? Mm -hmm. No, police don't help because as far as the police are concerned, well, the child is with one of the parents. And although it's an unannounced flight, there's no law that actually has been broken. It's kind of like, all right, Paul Theus is, you're on your own, buddy. You know, try to get that kid home. Exactly. So he did what a lot of parents do. You, you know, get on the phone and you find an attorney and say, well, what do I do? <laughs> right. So let's get this, uh, you know, let's get this situation resolved. Goes to the attorney. Attorney then says, gets a hold of another person to get the child home. Court date is set up. Paul's thrilled. It's great. Child's coming home, you know. Attorneys go and bivouac in with the judge, and Richard is the name of the attorney of Paul's attorney. And he comes out and he says, Oh, it's great, you know, the child's home. But, you know, do you have a neighbor, a neighbor called Selena? Paul says, Yes, it's three doors down. It's one of the neighbors. Oh, well, Anne and the child have been at that house three doors away for the last three days. Like, what? <laughs> And they're in court, there's no child. So Paul is asking, well, you know, Richard, like, well, how do I get the kid home? He's like, okay, well, you know, Anne didn't bring the child today, court, but, you know, the child will be over at 5 p.m. tonight. Great. Situation's resolved. Richard says, oh, yeah, but there's one other thing. Paul says, what? Well, the child's going back to the mom what do you mean it's going back? We just got the child back 3,000 miles away. Paul's in the home, mm -hmm. the marital home, the home of the child. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter. Child goes back to mom. So this sort of kicks off the story. It's not quite as easy to resolve as you might think. It's really not. I've heard so many cases over the last, well, two years just been in the news it's taken a couple of people going across seas to get their child back mm -hmm. this is very common i mean this is work of fiction but the seriousness of it it does happen it costs thousands upon thousands of dollars sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars to get the child home yep 
And this is essentially what Paul's problem is, and he, he finds this out. Child comes home another time, and like a lot of kids, this is a five-year-old kid. This is what the novel was written about. It's a five-year-old child, and the five-year-old doesn't have what the child called Katrin, the big Afghan. Dad, the Paul says, well, where's your big Afghan? You know, you've never been away from this since you were a baby. Well, mom didn't give it to me. What do you mean? You don't have your security blanket? Cost Paul $600 to go to court to try to get the security blanket for the child that the mom didn't provide. A series of incidents like this. And so it is what you say, extraordinarily expensive because you go through counselors, you go through evaluations of your money, you go through all of these things. And Paul, like a lot of parents would find out, after several months by going to court, you find out, well, Paul is in arrears for child support. You know, well, you know, she took all the money. <laughs> you know, the bank accounts were emptied. Well, that doesn't matter. She gets all that plus and is now going to get all the child custody money for child support. Money's just going right out the window. And what a lot of parents will find out, and a lot of fathers in these situations will find out, of course, is that there's no consideration whatsoever. Suddenly now he's got to support two households. Mm -hmm. It's not like he goes to his employer and says, okay, you know, I need to now support another household. You know, it's not like he's going to get higher wages as a result or anything. No, you just, your income was just halved because now you have to support two households in two different places. Right. And then they have the whole other situation. If you get a second job, now you have additional income. So now they want to raise whatever the support is that you're supposed to be paying. Yes. And in this instance, uh, the way this novel unfolds is the fact that when there is an evaluation of money, mom is getting money under the table and does not have to produce any receipts and judge rules. Well, someday down the road, she will be able to get all the receipts. And Paul, by this time, had been a professor. He's now working for an internet startup because the story is written. It's like mid to late 90s where the internet is just getting going. But because you can show that his earning capacity is much higher, then he's going to be assessed at a much higher rate. And mm -hmm. so he's paying a lot more. And in this situation, in the novel, the judge doesn't even require Anthe is to produce anything. He just makes a kind of an arbitrary decision because you're the paycheck, you're the money guy, and now you're going to be supporting both households. Right. Unfortunately, we hear about this so often in court battles, custody battles. It doesn't matter if you're lower income or upper high class citizen or whatever regardless of how this is playing out and this is work of fiction but at the same time there's so much truth in it that the guy's the paycheck mom doesn't have to do anything and mom's going to get the child and paycheck and whatever money she's getting from wherever mom's getting it from mm -hmm. is this in the best interest of child well yeah. how many times do we actually ask what's in the best interest of the child That's now you took it to the extreme in this work of fiction, but at the same time, it's questions that have to be asked. 
that's the subtitle. That's the that's why I put it in the subtitles in the in the best interest of the children with a question mark because this is what you hear. Everybody says it's in the best interest of the child, and in this scenario, why would you necessarily send a child back to a mom who had pierced her genitals and taken off like that? So if you flip the the situation, if Paul had pierced his penis, would he get the child? <laughs> I guarantee you. He wouldn't. No, it, it's so misconstrued that everything's equal when you go into court. Well, justice isn't equal when it comes to children. We go with our misconceptions of what we perceive as what is in the best interest of the child. And a lot of times it's not really what's in the best interest. Yeah, and I think this is what comes down. Now, in this instance, uh, talking about it's a work of fiction, mm -hmm. but you also find that the other people around, so I mean, you may have heard the expression, it takes a village to raise a child. But see, I counter that notion because if the village was raising the child, you would get all sorts of cooperation from people. But you know, you have neighbors, you have counselors, you have attorneys, you have judges, what have you. And in this type of instance, nobody's acting in the best interest of the child. It's a system, you know, and it's a system built on money. It's built on who's making money. Well, the judges are employed, the lawyers are employed, the counselors are employed. Everybody's making money from mm -hmm. this. So part of the title is saying burning America is because, you know, another slogan that you will hear all the time, you know, the children are our future. Well, if the children are our future, you know, then we really ought to take that seriously. Children didn't ask to be born but they're thrown into this situation and they're thrown into custody battles. And that's why I wanted the title to be burning America. You're burning a, a resource of the next generation that now it's laid upon the next generation of these kids who are trying to survive a situation that is not set up in their interest. Correct. I mean, if we take it out of fiction, which the book is fiction, but we take it into the real world, how many times are children taken away from parents or grandparents put it into a system, the um, welfare system, and everyone loses track of the child. Is that at that point in the best interest of the child? We have more abuse going on in the welfare system, the child care system, than we did in the household that they were taken from. Yeah. And, you know, again, in this instance, the way the story is unfolds mm -hmm. is that. Paul has a conversation with Anne before she returns from California. And she says, well, you're going to need to do all these things before I'll bring Katrin back. And Paul readily agrees. Like, sure, whatever you want done, you know, yeah. get it. So we'll finish it. So she requires him to go to a physical examination, a mental examination, and apologize to neighbors such as the Johnsons who Paul had called and said, look, you know, I apologize. I'm sorry. No hard feelings, but please, you know, cooperate with Anne in order to get the child back. So physical examination. No, he's fine. Examination, try to get an MRI. No, it's fine. There's really no compelling reason. So in other words, there are all kinds of situations where a person might take flight from a home. But in this instance, no abuse, no alcohol, drug problems, no one's fooling around. Paul is still in the house. You know, it was Anne who took off and it's Anne who left. So therefore it's sort of like, well, 
where would the stable person be the stable parent in this situation is yes, I'd argue would be Paul because he's the one who's trying to keep the child in the home, the marital home and the only home the child knew and in the school because Anne takes off with the child one day and he finds out when the child's getting off the bus that in fact she's put in another school father had no say so didn't even know about it and the selena neighbor here the character of selena is there with an audio with an audio and a video tape trying to get paul in a uncomfortable situation or getting mad or angry because that way so you can go back to the court and say well see right. he, he went ballistic over the change of school which violates a court order one of the problems that uh the parent who is being alienated against has is that all these things are written in a court order and if you honor the court order that's fine but out in the real world there is no one to enforce a court order so if one parent decides not to do what the court order says there's no solution for the other parent to do anything about it there's no enforcement mechanism for these kinds of things exactly so and that's that's in today's real world, uh, and not the fictional world, but the real world, a court order is a piece of paper. It doesn't matter what's on the piece of paper, it's not an always enforceable, or yeah. at least not enforceable in the moment you need it enforced. You have to go back to a court system and have the court reissue another order or judgment or whatever. It's not always enforceable that very moment when you need it. Yeah, and again, there's another incident where exactly this is exactly what happened. So Paul has Katrin home in the home and Selena and Anne, the neighbor and the mom drive up on the lawn of the house, tell Katrin jump in the car and this poor kid's like, well, what do I do? You know, I got dad here, I'm home, but mom's telling me to get in the car with the neighbor Selena. Well, then she runs off. Paul calls the police. Well, she took off with the child again. What do I do? Police officer looks at the court order. It's late on a Friday night. He says, well, first of all, this is not the official court order. It's a copy. Well, what else is Paul going to have? He says a copy. Mm -hmm. He said, well, wait till Monday. Call your attorney. Let's see what we can do on Monday. Well, Selena and Ann then have the child for the weekend where she was supposed to be home with Paul court order is unenforceable police can't enforce it they're telling you the same thing it's that revolving circle go back to your attorney pay more money see what you can do but meanwhile if a parent is being alienated against you've just lost whatever time that you should have had a weekend or whatever it might have been exactly and this happens so so often and it's something that we're using fiction to bring to light because it needs to be fixed into today's society. Yep, that's what I, I was saying. And you know, some of the things that you would see on the cover, for example, I sent the cover you can see, it's a child's drawing. And one of the aspects of this is that you go through a battery of psychological tests to see who is qualified and who is able mentally and prepared for the child. So in this case, Paul has the child, mom's there, psychiatrist is there, and they're examining each one of them, interviewing them separately and together. 
psychiatrist takes Katrin, the child, into session with him. And since this is a small child, this is really over a three-year period, but a five or six-year-old, he says to the child, draw a picture of your family. So the small child does draw a picture of her family. What does she draw? She draws mom to the right side of the picture, dad holding Katrin as a baby, just as I suggested earlier. He was the primary caregiver. Psychiatrist takes that picture, he looks at it, and he concludes in his official write-up about the session, Paul has an undue influence upon his daughter. Something is wrong with Paul. They're like, well, a child just drew a picture. Child is very innocent and very honest. She just drew a picture of her family, like you asked. However, even that is then used as evidence against Paul, as if he has an undue influence on her. It literally makes no sense whatsoever. No, if, it, it really doesn't. But at the same time, we hope that everything works out for the best interest of the child in the end. That said, are you writing a second book? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that I thought about is to try to write something that was a first person point of view because then a reader would be reading it from Paul's point of view and a child would be too small to write something like that. So perspective might be somewhere else or someone else to supplement that. So in terms of other writings, I also have a background in academic work. So I mean, academically, these things could be done, but then it would be another academic venue and not necessarily fiction. But I think the fiction idea is something that would get people involved in the first place because you take an interest in the story and you wouldn't necessarily read from an academic source. So it does seem like there's another follow-up here and to kind of bring out the facts and the statistics of how common this is, how often this is, what happens in the similar situations in order to address the issue and to change it. Or as some have argued too, it's like, well, going before state legislatures too, you know, get involved in the politics of this too, because clearly this is a system that is set up in the so-called justice system that's part and parcel of how things are done, but perhaps legislation too is a way to go if people would get motivated after having read the novel. Very true. We need more people to speak up in our legislative branch, and I can't say the word properly, but in the judicial system, speak up. Well, let's get the laws to actually be in the best interest of our children so they have a better life than what we did 30 years ago. Yeah. And uh, if you were thinking about historically, too, because here's what's interesting. In the 19th century, what had happened was men always got custody, always. So, well, what's the thinking there? Well, in the 19th century, the thinking was a man is working or a man can support a family, even if he's a farmer. So he had all the skills. Well, then in, say, in the 1970s, where you have women going more in the workforce and divorce rate raises up higher, mm -hmm. just the opposite occurred. Then it's women who get custody or mothers who get custody and it pushes out the father. So in contested custody cases, women or mothers win custody 92% of the time. 
That's the, the statistic. Mm -hmm. So you ask yourself, well, what does that mean? Only 8% of these guys are qualified, only 8% of the fathers? No, I mean, you would expect closer to 50-50, right? But it's not even close. So in a contested situation, mother is always going to get the child. And that seems to be addressed because there are all kinds of really great fathers out there. And a lot of fathers simply want to be with their kids or be around them. And in this case, too, it's part of the novel story. So Paul has the first attorney who I mentioned, Richard. Richard doesn't work out. Richard can't do anything. So Paul's thinking to himself, oh, I'm going to use better strategy here. So who does he hire as his second attorney? He hires a feminist attorney with the idea here is that he will get the same type of service that any mother or woman would get. Doesn't work out that way. Turns out even the best feminist attorney in this situation is set in the Philadelphia suburbs, well-known Philadelphia area attorney. She couldn't do anything. That's how bad the system is, even though you had a really good candidate here for being able to get the child returned home. Very true. And this is across the U.S. This is how bad the system really is. But at the same time, you're using fiction to tell what's wrong with society. Yep, that's precisely it. That's the, the goal. So if it's like, that's the agenda. It's like, you know, you've got to read a story in which you get a compelling story written with a number of incidents that even if it's a work of fiction, the things that I'd say, I'm creative, but I'm not that creative. All the things that you think are, couldn't possibly happen, those are all the true parts. Those yeah. are all the things that are stories that actually happen. Isn't it funny that truth is stranger than fiction? Yes, that, that absolutely the case. Now, background in history, actually. So I used to quote this to my students all the time. Truth is stranger than fiction because... You can't make it up. You, you, can't. you really can't. And it boggles your mind because you don't want to go so far outside of fiction to have it so blown up. But then you go back and wait, this actually happened. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a great episode on Seinfeld. If you've ever seen Seinfeld and enjoy it as much as I do, it's the episode it's called Bizarro World where there's the exact opposite of all the characters in the Seinfeld episode. Exactly. It's bizarro world. It's just mm -hmm. the opposite of what you would think are normal procedures or things that might work or might work well. It's just the opposite. It's bizarre. And yes. you're in this bizarre world. But we are almost out of time. So where can our listeners and our viewers find you and your book? Sure. Yeah. So I've got a site that came up. And since you were kind enough to invite me on the show today, I actually have the final cover now posted. And you can see the final cover because we're going to print next week, we're going to format it. So burning-america.com is a website, burning-america.com. You can also go to Instagram, Burning America, and you'll see updates there as well. And feel free to contact me directly. It's Mick as in Jagger, except he makes more money, mick.smith <laughs> at wsiworld.com, mick.smith at wsiworld.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I appreciate the opportunity and love chatting with you. Thank you so much. And for our viewers and our listeners, happy reading. <laughs>